Welcome to Catching Curveballs. Join Dr. Moji, a psychology professor at the University of Ohio, and her daughter, Yabade, a research scientist in California, on a journey of how to make the most of what life throws your way. We hope to make today's podcast as informative and lighthearted as possible. So sit back and join us on this adventure. All right, mom, I hope you're ready for another exciting episode. Dear listeners, we have a special start for today and it's feedback we've received from other listeners, maybe even you. And so we'll go ahead and jump right in and discuss some of them. And of course, as always, if you have your own comments or questions, remember to send them to catchingcurveballs at gmail.com. That's catchingcurveballs at gmail.com or DM us at Catching Curveballs Podcast on Instagram. That's Catching Curveballs Podcast on Instagram. Both are listed in the show notes in case you want to double check the spelling or in case you tuned out briefly and missed the last few seconds. Also remember to rate and review if you enjoy what you hear. Okay, so I think we'll stick to just a few comments since otherwise we'll spend the entire episode on this segment alone. We'll start with the topic we seem to love a lot, personality, specifically the big five traits. One listener shared a statement that I found so hilarious in stating that he or she, I'll use they since I don't know them personally, but they stated that in completing the big five personality test, they quote, seem to encompass the highs and lows of them, end quote. And it was just too funny a comment not to share it. It's super simple, but still so hilarious. Another agreed with the struggle that I shared in taking the test, which was that depending on the situation, how I'd evaluate myself would significantly differ. And so this listener stated it so eloquently by saying, quote, some items were difficult to answer because different situations elicited different responses. I too found it difficult to choose at times and found that I answered, quote, neutral, end quote, for these items, end quote. So yes, I'm double quoting all over the place. But that was their statement and their feedback that they provided. And there was a bit more to it, but then they asked a question that I couldn't help but think through and wonder about myself, which was a curiosity as to whether this influenced the validity of the test, since neutral didn't necessarily reflect their thoughts. And I'll just address this one with how I attempted to manage this so as to yield what I'd argue is most accurate or most fitting for a majority of the time. As I completed the assessment for myself and in considering you, mom, I tried to do so thinking of how I'd rate myself most frequently versus overall or in general. And since it's on a scale from strongly disagree to strongly agree, I truly limited selecting those extremes for only the statements that I believe I always display or feel, as in the moments where I couldn't think of an exception. Then when I could think of exceptions or particular situations in which I tend to skew towards one direction or the other, I'd select a response that was closer to neutral, not necessarily neutral, but just in the middle of neutral and that extreme. And there were a few that I selected the neither disagree nor agree because it was just too variable, but those were so rare that I overall don't believe they invalidated my results. I'll share an example with the statement, quote, is outgoing, sociable, end quote. That statement was tough because I knew fully well I didn't strongly agree nor strongly disagree, but then even responding with how I am a majority of the time was difficult for me to do. But then with a statement such as, quote, is sometimes shy, introverted, end quote, 
I found that a bit easier to respond to since it's not as high level and broad a statement. So my hope was that by having answered enough of these prompts, in totality, the results would relatively accurately assess those five domains for me. Okay, mom, I know you really enjoyed these comments too and had a few to share as well. Why don't you go ahead and take it from here? Yes, my daughter, these have been very enjoyable and insightful listeners' feedback to reach through. Just to remind our audience, there is no right or wrong answers. And test takers are to select the number that most closely reflects them on each of the statements provided after reading each statement carefully. The statements also are about one's perception about oneself in a variety of situations. I personally didn't have any difficulty selecting neither disagree nor agree options. Also, in this particular personality test and other psychological tests, I typically don't select the quote neutral, meaning in this case, the neither disagree or agree option of scales. Maybe it's because I'm somewhat opinionated, and I mean this in a good way, such that I choose other selections and not the neutral one. Now, my daughter, in terms of your concern, yes, there is a problem when individuals select or have a tendency to select the neutral option. Why? It's selecting the extremes, for example, strongly disagree or disagree and strongly agree or agree that yield more meaningful results. In keeping with the theme, I also appreciated how many listeners shared their perspectives regarding how they've noticed certain aspects of their personality change over time. One listener shared how they were, quote, much more agreeable when they were younger. However, now that they hold strong opinions, they have more confidence to defend them. Similarly, they believe their neuroticism has declined. They have learned more coping strategies and defenses against stress, end of quote. Personally, as time has passed, that is in comparing my current self to my much younger self, I have observed that I am more conscientious, that is more self-disciplined, more organized, and more likely to follow a plan. Although I think with age, I'm less extroverted. I used to be more sociable. My observation has also been confirmed by friends who knew me during our university days, and I'm talking about 40 years ago, and after reconnecting more recently. Keep those coming, listeners. That was so much fun. And as you can probably hear in my voice, I was so excited to receive some of this feedback and even for my mom and I to have the chance to share our thoughts on them. So definitely continue to send them. Okay, so onto the topic that I promised would be exciting, or at least that we hope you find as exciting as we do. Today, we're exploring attachment. 
And before we get started, a lot of our initial discussion will relate to childhood, but keep in mind that whether you're a parent already, not yet a parent, or never plan to be one, this concept is both impactful in the interaction you have with your children or other children, as well as also highly relevant in the relationships you form with others. Of course, each of us has at one point been a child and have our own experiences with this phenomenon that significantly impact who we are today and how we connect with those around us. If, however, you're not buying it and don't want to listen to more of the earlier developmental aspects, then just fast forward to the later portion of the episode in which we'll focus on the more adult attachment considerations. Okay, mom, from a psychological standpoint, what exactly does attachment refer to? According to John Bowlby and later Mary Ainsworth, and these are early attachment theorists, attachment is a deep and enduring emotional bond that connects one person to another across time and space. Another description is that attachment is an emotional bond in which an individual's sense of security is bound up in the relationship. We can best understand the concept of attachment in the context of relationships. To understand attachment between caregiver and infant, for instance, It is necessary to look at both caregiver-infant attachment and infant-caregiver attachment. Across time and space. How poetic. I'm so happy that we're having this discussion because whenever I hear attachment, I have such mixed feelings. On the one hand, I think of it highly positively and believe it's an important element in any relationship but then I also can't help but have my reservations about being attached to someone. Something about it sounds so unhealthy to me. Maybe by the end of this, I'll be able to sort through these feelings because even with those definitions, I'm still torn. And to help me get there, and maybe some of our listeners who might feel similarly, why is it important to form attachments? There are long-term consequences of the quality of attachment we form, my daughter. For example, attachment theory suggests that early emotional relationships shape later ones. Because of this, researchers have examined the relationships between forms of infant caregiver or parent attachment and a variety of other behaviors in many populations amongst infants, children, adolescents, and adults. They have found that children classified as having secure attachment in infancy are more sociable, more positive in their behavior toward friends and siblings, less clinging and dependent on teachers, less aggressive and disruptive, more empathetic and more emotionally mature in their approach to school and other non-home settings as older children. Investigators have also found that adolescents who were rated as securely attached were more socially skilled, had more intimate friendships, were more likely to be rated as leaders, and had higher self-esteem later on. 
Those with insecure attachments, particularly those with avoidant attachment, not only had less positive and supportive friendships, but also were more likely to become sexually active early and practice riskier sex. More recently, researchers have been examining the impact of adults' internal model of attachment and their parenting styles. They have found that mothers, for instance, who have secure attachment are more responsive and sensitive to their infants or young children. The bottom line is that attachment relationship is the basis for future social relationships. For instance, people with a secure attachment style tend to have more stable relationships, more sexual satisfaction, and may be less likely to engage in harmful sexual behavior. Wow, those are incredibly significant consequences of attachment, and it's very interesting to hear how poor quality attachment or perhaps limited attachment during infancy continues to propagate and even impact future generations. Let's dissect this live for our listeners using you and I as an example. I would say as a child, and even now, I'm usually pretty positive in my interactions with friends and family. In school, I was most definitely not so clingy nor dependent on my teachers, far from aggressive and disruptive, but that was mainly out of concern that I'd come home to you and dad being extremely upset with me. Actually, I won't go any further, but so far, I think we fit the bill in having had, and I suppose still having, a healthy attachment to one another, but I'm still bothered by the term and can't fully embrace it without finding some aspect of it to be problematic just yet. Can you walk us through how attachment develops? I suppose more so in the child and caregiver setting. Research suggests that contact between mother or caregiver and infant immediately after birth does not appear to be either necessary or sufficient for the formation of a stable long-term bond between them. What investigators have shown to be essential is the opportunity for mother or caregiver and infant to develop a mutual interlocking pattern of attachment behaviors called synchrony, which is like a conversation. Each party, caregiver and infant, take turns starting an interaction and responding to each other. These synchronous interactions serve as a foundation for the attachment relationship. For the first few weeks after a child is born, caregivers of different genders engage in similar interactions with the newborn in terms of how they touch, cuddle, and talk with the newborn. However, with time, there seems to be a kind of specialization that occurs, such that male caregivers spend more time playing with the baby by engaging in more rough housing, while female caregivers spend more time in caregiving, talking, and smiling. Researchers have argued that there might be a biological basis 
in these observed parental behavior differences. In terms of infant, parent, or caregiver attachment, these go through four phases, according to John Bowlby and others. These phases begin from when babies up to three months of age exhibit behavior such as crying, smiling, and making eye contact which draws the attention of others and signal their needs to everyone with whom they come into contact with. The phases end with when the infant develops an internal model of the attachment relationship, which allows children older than two years to imagine how an anticipated action might affect the bonds that they share with their caregiver. It's so strange because when I do the same things and cry, smile, and make eye contact, people look at me as if I'm crazy, while when an infant does so, everyone surrounds them and tries to problem solve. It's so unfair. Just kidding, I promise, even though my mom's looking at me as if I'm not joking. She's like, I've seen you try, actually. So... (laughs) I find it so fascinating that attachment or that affectional bond has its foundation so early on, especially that by the age of two and well older, children already have a sense of how a particular action on their part might impact the bond they have with their caregiver. And a lot of that being dictated by what they've experienced during those earlier phases. And what's so interesting is I, by default, expected attachment to form far later as children develop a better grasp of who their parents are and their relationship dynamic, or even how that relationship compares to those others around them have with their own parents or caregivers. But turns out, what you do as a parent when your child is an infant and toddler carries long-term implications in their development. Thanks for the heads up. So to take this a step further, what are the different types of attachment? Researchers typically describe differences in the quality of the first attachment relationship using Mary Ainsworth's category system. This system distinguishes between secure attachment and two types of insecure attachment following Ainsworth's procedure called the strange situation test. This procedure involves observing infants' responses to the presence and absence of other people in a laboratory setting in each of the following eight situations. With the mother, with the mother and a stranger, alone with a stranger, completely alone for a few minutes, reunited with the mother, alone again, with the stranger again, finally reunited with the mother. According to Ainsworth and later researchers, there are four major types of attachment based on observations of the child using this particular test. One type is referred to as secure attachment. A child with this form of attachment readily separates from the mother or caregiver easily engages in exploration of the environment, when threatened or frightened, will readily seek contact and is consoled, and such a child does not avoid nor resist contact if a caregiver initiates it. 
Then there are three types of insecure attachments. The insecure avoidant attachments. Here, a child with this form of attachment avoids contact with their mother, especially upon reunion after an absence, does not resist the mother's efforts to make contact, but does not seek much contact and shows no preference for mother over stranger. There's also insecure ambivalent attachment. A child with this form of attachment shows little exploration and is wary of stranger and is greatly upset when separate from mother, but not reassured when mother returns or even tries to comfort the child. The child both seeks and avoids contact at different times, may show anger toward mother at reunion, and resist both comfort from and contact with stranger. Lastly, there is insecure disorganized attachment. A child with this form of attachment exhibits dazed behavior, confusion, or apprehension, may show contradictory behavior patterns simultaneously, such as moving toward mother while keeping gaze averted. I just have to say that the visual of having infants in a lab and observing these situational responses is something else, especially the third and fourth types, the third being the insecure ambivalent attachment, in which I just picture a parent trying everything to console the child, but the child continuously resists and even gets angry, and the fourth where the child behaves so confusingly. Actually, even the visual of the second type, the insecure avoidant attachment, is tough because picturing a child showing no preference over parent or stranger is just painful. So with these categories, you've definitely convinced me of the importance of secure attachment because baby type number one was the only form that sounded healthy and didn't break my heart to hear. What are then the predictors or factors associated with this particular form of attachment? Well, children's family environment or life circumstances matter. When these are reasonably consistent, the security or attachment also seems to remain consistent even over many years. When the children's circumstances change in some major way, for example, because of the divorce of parents, death of a parent, the security of children's attachment may change as well either from secure to insecure or from insecure to secure. Furthermore, caregiver or parent's characteristics matter. Examples include the caregiver's mental health, more specifically the presence or absence of psychiatric conditions, as well as marital status, socioeconomic status, and their emotional responses to their infants. Important aspects of caregivers' responses that can contribute to forming a secure attachment include their emotional availability. Emotionally available parents or caregivers are those who are able and willing to form an emotional attachment to the infant. 
Another important component is a caregiver's contingent responsiveness. Contingent responsiveness refers to a caregiver's sensitivity to a child's cues and immediate and or appropriate response. This behavior contributes to the formation of a secure attachment type between the child and caregiver. I understand that I'm not a psychologist, but in my own personal observations, I have to argue that emotional availability and contingent responsiveness are the most important factors in forming healthy and secure attachments. I recognize that mental health, marital status, and socioeconomic status might impact those other two components, but even those who are single parents or don't have the highest levels of education or make what could be categorized as not much money still seem to have really strong bonds with their children during childhood and even adulthood. And actually, I can think of a few examples where both parents are married, there was an absence of a diagnosed mental condition in either, and they were in mid to high socioeconomic levels, yet from the descriptions of their childhood, their children did not experience security, stability, or what would even come close to a healthy attachment with their parents. The reason seemingly being the lack of emotional availability and even responsiveness their parents displayed. In many cases, it seems to be one of the parents versus both, but nevertheless, those seem to be the most critical elements in attachment formation. And come to think of it, I'm currently reading Mary Trump's book, Too Much and Never Enough. Yes, listeners, I can never resist the New York Times bestseller list and definitely didn't want to miss out on this one. Trust me, you don't either. But the author, Mary Trump herself, is a psychologist and has this section around attachment and the significant impact it has on a person's development. She even uses a currently very famous and relevant Trump family member as practically a case study of this concept. And I'll avoid getting political here, but from her account, she would likely support my statement regarding the extremely detrimental consequences of the absence of emotional availability on a child, despite the presence of parental wealth and marital status. So psychology researchers, authors, listen to me on this one and highlight, bold, even underline emotional availability and responsiveness in whatever section this fits into your respective publication. Let's head down a slightly different direction, though. What role does culture play in attachment? In the context of attachment, studies in a variety of countries support the notion that some form of secure-based behavior occurs in every child in every culture. A secure attachment pattern is the most common pattern when attachment researchers examine the results of studies from different countries. Studies have shown that even in communal cultures where all the adult women regularly interact with and care for all the infants, infants still seem to exhibit some signs of a fundamental or essential attachment, even though it might be less dominant. Thus, cross-cultural attachment researchers suggest that the same factors in infant, mother, or caregiver interaction are associated with secure and insecure attachments in all cultures, and that these patterns mirror similar internal models. Of course, we need more research regarding the long-term outcomes of the various forms of attachment. 
However, based on the findings thus far, this seems to be the case globally. Wow. Very interesting and not what I would have expected, actually. Moving on to the adult portion. Mom, let's spend some time discussing attachment in the context of adult relationships. Let's do so, my daughter. In this context, we can describe attachment to be the feeling of being emotionally close to someone, and it is often a major component of love. It is important to understand how to find a healthy balance between the two, that is attachment and love, which can help adults form and maintain fulfilling and happy relationships. Our attachment styles also influence our mate selection, quality of romantic relationships, marital relationships, and the likelihood that marriages or unions last or end in divorce. And are the attachment styles for adults similar to those you've described in children? Actually, the attachment styles for children and adults are the same. However, psychologists might use different terms for classifying insecure attachment styles. And I might add that in applying these secure and insecure attachment styles to adults, things can be further complicated by the nature of the relationships adults experience not only in their childhood but in growing up. Typically, adults who have secure attachments have learned to expect the best of other people, believing that these people have good hearts. Whilst adults who have insecure attachments have relationships where fear taints these bonds and their expectation is that other people will abandon and harm them. Let me explain further. By using other insecure attachment labels used by some psychologists, disorganized or disoriented attachment is common among people who have suffered abuse in childhood. When these adults' relationships are a source of anxiety, they will react in unexpected ways. They may, for instance, disconnect emotionally. Anxious, ambivalent attachment is common among people who abuse substance or engage in self-harm. When these adults' relationships are a source of anxiety, they engage in such escapist and avoidant behavior. Finally, Anxious avoidant attachment is common among people in rocky or dramatic relationships. These adults have difficulty establishing close relationships, which results in deep emotional pain. It is important to note that any form of insecure attachment has disadvantages, mostly emotional. All is not lost, however, as these attachment styles can be changed. How? If one is aware of one's behavior, if one knows its causes, and if one knows its consequences. People with insecure attachment styles can overcome attachment issues. They can live much more rewarding lives. 
And that's likely what I have to keep in mind because before we started recording, I actually viewed attachment as just one uniform concept with one narrow definition. So perhaps the fear I have is directed towards the more harmful or even destructive types of attachment, while my concurrent appreciation for the concept is directed towards the beneficial form it can also exist as. And to use a non-psychological definition of attachment as an analogy, you can say you're attached to your phone, something so simple that many people claim they're glued to. However, it can be a positive if you're so fixated on more productive uses with your phone that you can't imagine life without it, whereas it can be detrimental if you're obsessed with using it and perhaps not in helpful ways. Same goes for attachments with others, whether you're a child or adult, or you're still figuring it out. Before we wrap up, what are some strategies we can employ to facilitate secure attachment? There are some strategies for enhancing secure attachment, and these can be effective. In a 2018 study, Susan Salisbury investigated whether 10 minutes of attachment-enhancing play delivered daily over two weeks could improve adult-child relationships and whether this bettered the way they function socially and emotionally. The attachment-enhancing play was based on theraplay principles and utilized the four dimensions of structure, engagement, nurture, and challenge. Now, quickly, theraplay is a structured form of play that seeks to enhance parent-child attachments, self-esteem, and trust. It strives to replicate normal parent-child interactions. Anyway, the researcher found that therapy improved adult-child relationships and reduced children's overall stress. Also, attachfromstratch.com provides strategies we can use with parenting and even in general in our relationships with others. A few that I would like to highlight are respond with sensitivity, Use nurturing touch, provide consistent and loving care, practice positive discipline, and strive for balance in personal and family life. In addition, I personally believe the sooner you incorporate sensitivity, emotional availability, consistent care for others, and stress management into your life, the better. By doing so, you'll not only form healthier attachments and relationships with others, but you'll be better poised to catching curveballs. I like how I can easily replay this episode or even just rewind a few seconds. Yet sometimes I'll still naturally look for a pen and paper to write down some of these strategies. I think my mom's probably confused as she's seeing me stretching out and reaching for pen and paper, trying to take notes mid-recording. But I genuinely appreciate those suggestions and really do have to agree that I can only imagine the benefit that comes not only in our formation of secure attachments, but just overall with our relationships with others in embracing those concepts. Okay, well, it's that time where we're getting ready to say see you later to all of you listeners. So mom, why don't you share your quote for today? 
Thanks, my daughter. My quote for today is by the attachment theorist I've referenced a few times over, John Bowlby. And I quote, Mother love in infancy and childhood is as important for mental health as are vitamins and proteins for physical health. Well, that is all for now. Thank you for spending time with us. Yes, we want to hear from you. Give us feedback on what you heard today and suggestions for topics you would like us to discuss in future episodes. You can email us at catchingcurveballs at gmail.com. That's catchingcurveballs at gmail.com, all one word. Or you can follow us on Instagram at catchingcurveballspodcast. That's catchingcurveballspodcast. And if you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. We cannot wait to connect with you soon.